Hallelujah. Oh, Father, we thank you for this time that you have given us. Lord, I pray that we would not take it lightly or for granted, but that our hearts and our minds would be fixed upon the glorious truths of the gospel contained in your holy word. I pray that you would take these immortal truths from the pages of your scripture that you have sovereignly preserved through the ages and write them indelibly on the tables of our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would equip your saints for the work of the ministry beyond this place as fruit of this service today. I pray that our eyes would be open spiritually to see your greatness and glory through the pages of Scripture and through the work of redemption. I pray that our ears would be open to hear your holy word proclaimed and that faith would be stirred by its delivery. I pray that our hearts would be moved to appreciate, Lord, at greater levels the great things that you have done so that our affections, Lord, might ring with the joyful privilege of serving you in light of what you have done and what you have shared with us this morning. I pray, Lord, as we open your scriptures, that you would be glorified, God, and that you would be magnified and lifted up in all, Lord, that you might find us as diligent household servants, taking care of your affairs in your absence, as it were, as we studied last week in Matthew 25, looking forward to the day of your second coming and return, Lord Jesus, diligent about the work that you have given us to do. Help us, Lord Jesus, to look to you as we take communion later as well. And to see that only in your blood is sufficient payment for sins. We thank you that you have provided it. And we thank you for every believer in this room that it is as real today as it has ever been. And I pray that you would bring that to our attention through the course of this service today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God for the opportunity to open his scripture together. Today's message is entitled, Fits the Bill. And again, it's drawn from Hebrews chapter 9, so turn there with me if you would. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews, the entire book, goes, to, goes on to explain how Jesus Himself is the perfect fit for what was prefigured in the Old Covenant and what was demanded of salvation, in salvation, and that only in Christ, only in His blood, only in His sacrifice, only in His mediatory work is there sufficient ground for our salvation can our sins be atoned for can be can we be ransomed and redeemed he has said this in so many different ways drawing on the great depth of the old covenant figures prefigurings prophecies and ceremony and old testament or tabernacle worship and it's so helpful to us because the book of hebrews thus provides a picture of the continuity of all of scripture how god has chosen through different ways and means to reveal himself to us as people. He's done it through the Old Covenant in various types and shadows, and he's done it in the New explicitly through the preaching of his own Son as the book opens declaring. So stand with me if you would, with your Bible open to Hebrews chapter 9, out of reverence for God's Word. And let's read together, follow me as I declare God's Word, verses 15 through 22. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. But when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord, that God, commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent in all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the holy word of God. You may be seated. <coughs> Let me read again Hebrews 9.15. This verse will be central to my message today. As those around it explain it, and as this verse is central the entire book of Hebrews, then I would argue in all of the scriptures themselves. 
It is one of those great gospel compendiums and summaries in just one sentence that packs in so much that we could spend a lifetime exploring it and never exhaust its reaches. Hebrews 9.15 Therefore, He, speaking of Christ, therefore He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That is a powerful sentence indeed. Hebrews 9.15 is one of those spectacular gospel-saturated verses that summarizes in one sentence what the entire Bible expounds. The truth of this single verse understood and appreciated would provide a wellspring of worship for eternity. It is a suitable theme for the throne room of God where the elders cast their thrones and we will someday join them in worshiping and glorifying the King of Kings, the Lamb of God in glory. In context, Hebrews 9.15 is heavy laden with theological significance and today's message will explore a bit of that immediate context and a little broader in the book of Hebrews, even touching back to Exodus where there's a reference to the cleansing of blood in the Old Covenant. As we explore these things, I think we will see in typical Hebrews fashion that the language and illustrations for the groundwork and glory of the new covenant are pointed and vivid as the author draws deeply from the Old Testament ceremonial and sacrificial worship order. As he does so, he reminds us that the Bible is a continuity. It's a whole. It's a single book written by a single author. Though many human authors were involved, the Holy Spirit binds it together in its unified message. Uh, P.E. Hughes commentary that I study in preparation for this message today had this great quote. He says, the new covenant is not new to God, but to us. As in the sequence of history, it supersedes and transcends the former covenant given through the mediation of Moses. There's a lot of talk in Hebrews of a new covenant. There's a distinction drawn between it and the old. But uh, P.E. Hughes reminds us, as does the author of Hebrews, that this is not to assume that this was a plan B or something that God thought of because the first one had failed. But instead, it was the illuminating glasses that when fixed upon the eyes of those who have eyes to see, they can begin to fit all the pieces of sovereign, redemptive revelation in their proper order and place. The new covenant is not new to God, but it is new to us. It's a revelation of the glory of God through Jesus Christ, that makes sense of all God has written and declared through the course of history. And as P.E. Hughes says, in the sequence of history, it, that is the new covenant, supersedes and transcends the former covenant given through the mediation of Moses. And this, in large part, is the theme of Hebrews. How much more, how much greater then, if Moses was honorable in all his house, how much greater the apostle Jesus Christ, that which what provisionally covered sins, the unintentional sins of the people, how much more in the high priesthood of Jesus do we have eternal redemption and so on. Under a heading today, this morning, I would like to explore a passage in three major points. Here's the heading. There is no salvation without the following. First of all, a new covenant mediator. There is no salvation without a new covenant mediator. Secondly, there is no salvation without a promised eternal inheritance. Thirdly, this morning, there's no salvation without a death that redeems. These three phrases come directly from our text today. Again, Hebrews 9.15, Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant. Speaking of Christ, a new covenant mediator, salvation is dependent upon His work, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. The essence of salvation received is that inheritance, what we have, what we have given through Christ, transferred to our account that He retained and upon His death secured for us. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under this first covenant, a death that redeems. Jesus Christ was the death that redeemed for all time the deaths that preceded Him, that were prefigured in the blood of goats, bulls, ashes of a heifer. They would sanctify for the purification of the flesh, according to 9.13. But according to 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, 
purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. (coughs) This, the death of Jesus Christ, is the death that ultimately redeems. Exploring more under our heading and first point, a new covenant mediator. The book of Hebrews explores this concept at great length. The, Hebrew, or the uh, Greek word for mediator, mesithes, or something along those lines, <coughs> if you look at its definition, you'll find phrases such as this, intermediary, someone that goes between, an arbitrator, someone who intervenes to restore peace between two parties, especially as it fulfills a compact or ratifies a covenant. Someone who intervenes to restore peace between two parties, especially as it fulfills a compact or ratifies a covenant. There you see the gospel, do you not? The compact or covenant, (coughs) excuse me, agreement that was broken between man and God himself in the garden cried out for mediation or judgment. And in Christ, the only true mediator, the new covenant mediator, restoration and peace between the holy God and sinful man was accomplished. How he intervened and how he did that is the story (coughs) of the gospel and is revealed to us in the course of the new covenant. As we think about this idea of mediation or mediator, the author of Hebrews begins, he introduces this concept by drawing our attention to prototypes. Turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 3. He has listed several prototype mediators, if you will, in his book to give us an idea of what Christ would be. In other words, just as Moses did the following, so Christ did thus and such and more. Here's an example, Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him. These words are significant as we found in our study appointed. That's mediatory language. That's language of fullness of time or perfect (coughs) selected agency. Jesus Christ was was faithful to him, that is God the Father, who appointed him. Then notice verse 2 in chapter 3, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So you read a little bit of the mediation of Moses. Jesus has been... (coughs) Excuse me. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house (coughs) has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over all God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So here we have a comparison that the author of Hebrews uses, the mediation of Moses compared to the mediation of Christ. Moses was faithful in his house as a servant, (coughs) much more sufficiently, Jesus was faithful as a son, the son of God. Moses uh, would intercede on behalf of the people. You guys remember, he was delegated the agency of representing them to the Father. So they would say, we don't want to come in contact with the glory of God. Surely we can't and live. You speak for us, Moses. So Moses then would be sent by the people, as it were, to speak to God on their behalf. In the high priesthood, we have the same picture. And in this way, Moses prefigured the work of Christ. He was a prototype mediator, if you will. We go on to get another picture of this in chapter 7. If you turn over in Hebrews 7, verses 11 through 19. Here again, we see that perfection was not attainable through the law or through the symbolic mediation that preceded Christ. And this is the point again to show by these prototype pictures how Christ surpassed them in perfection. In verse 11 we read, 
Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, of which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we have two prototypes here. One is prophetic of the perfection of Christ and one was more shadowy symbol. The Levitical priesthood or Aaron himself pictured what Christ would do. He would go before the Lord on behalf of the people to the place of mediation, make intercession for them. But there was uh, something missing, something lacking. There wasn't a satisfactory office uh, that it was fulfilled through the Levitical priesthood. And if this perfection had been attainable, the author tells us, through the Levitical priesthood, there would, not have had, there would not have been a further need for one, for another priest to arise after a different order entirely. What is this different order, the order of Melchizedek? Well, it's an order not by mere human standards or mere human measures. The, uh, those who would succeed Aaron in the Levitical priesthood would do so based on their physical blood. But Christ... He does so on the basis that he lives forever. He's the high priest who will never die. Melchizedek himself is listed in the scriptures without lineage. So he becomes a metaphorical picture, at least, of what Christ would be in the future. Here's someone who intervenes mysteriously, having no obvious point of origin and having no record of his death. Christ would come in time, in the fullness of time. And he would come in a mysterious way to us, extraordinary anyways. He would come born of a virgin, the incarnate son of God, and he would defeat death. He would die, but he would rise. And where, where would he rise to? He would rise to the place of mediation, the eternal heavens, the tent not made with hands, to forever intercede for his people, forever representing them before the Father, their advocate, their priest, as we have read, intervening to restore that peace between the two parties, especially as it fulfills a compact or ratifies a covenant. This was the work, this is the work of Jesus Christ. We saw it in these prototypes of Aaron, the Levitical order, and Moses. We saw it further prophesied in Melchizedek himself, and we see it fulfilled ultimately in Christ. Let's move under a new covenant mediator to functional criteria. In Hebrews 4, what is it that a mediator does exactly is really the question that much of Hebrews answers. In Hebrews 4, 14, we have a, a few things listed. It says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So in this way, an advocate has to have some point of contact with those that he is interceding for. Jesus, having been born of woman and walking, and even uh, was subjected to temptations such as we are, then can represent us before the Father. He is a credible advocate. Verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Not only was Jesus present with us, but he's also present with the Father. We, someone can relate to our experience, but if they don't have access to the throne room of grace, they cannot be an advocate for us, a high priest. They cannot be a mediator. But in Jesus' case, we find in verse 14, he is the great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He is as welcome in the heavenlies as he was on earth, more so indeed. So Jesus Christ, in his experience, in his incarnation, thus fills the functional criteria, fulfilled the functional criteria to be our advocate. 
move over to Hebrews chapter 8, we begin to see more of what it means to be a mediator. 8.1, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Pausing there, in this picture then, he has favored access. He can go before the Father. He has right of entry, if you will. Verse 2, he's a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So there's a place where he can make reconciliation before a holy God in representing all who are in him. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. This, of course, speaks to his intercession. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. But Jesus so far exceeds this that we find his uh, sacrifice and offering is sufficient. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Then here by glorious contrast in verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant. Uh, <coughs> and the old, excuse me, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So here we see some of the criteria, the functional criteria of a mediator. He is one who has a favored access to the sovereign, the great one, the king of kings, heavenly father in this case. Favored access affording him a perpetual ministry, interceding on behalf of those he represents. In so doing, he secures four things. Communion, or three things, communion, reconciliation, and intercession as a representative advocate. This is the work of a mediator. And there is no salvation without a new covenant mediator. The priesthood of old was insufficient. It didn't satisfy all these criteria. The prototypes were important and significant in as much as they pointed towards Christ, but in and of themselves, they were insufficient. Finally, under a new covenant mediator, divine conditions. Moving back to our main text today, we see that our verse, the first one in our word in our verse is therefore. Verse 15, 915, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that linking word would indicate ground that preceded it. So Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant because of what was already stated. What was already stated? Well, let's read 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant. So we see that Jesus Christ is the new covenant mediator because he has accomplished what we have just read. He has entered into the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands. He did it once and for all by means of his own blood. He did it through the sacrifice of himself. And he did it in this divine, uh, through these divine conditions that bring out the triune nature of the Godhead, as we mentioned in our last communion sermon in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Brothers and sisters, there is no salvation without the Trinity. There is no salvation without a new covenant mediator, but there is no new covenant mediator without the triune nature of the Godhead. God had to become man in order to provide the necessary conditions for him to intercede to represent us, to go between, to be the intermediary. 
and without the power of the Spirit applying this truth to our heart, changing us fundamentally on the inside. As this scripture says, there would be no mediation, no salvation. The Trinity, as we've mentioned before, is essential doctrine. It's essential not just to an understanding of the formal framework of Christianity, but it's an essential to the very nature of salvation itself. This is the genius, the glory, the beauty, the majesty, and the power of the Christian religion, if you will. There is nothing that will ever come close to the sophisticated power and glory of what is revealed in the Scripture. There is no other, in the mere concept of mankind, you know, idea of deity or higher power that intercedes on our behalf such as we have it in the Scriptures. If you're looking for the fingerprints of divine revelation, you'll find it all over the scriptures, but when it comes to Hebrews, it seems like the fingerprints are even more frequent. Because when we read of this, the power that is represented in God himself becoming man in order to satisfy the conditions of peace between a a holy God who is just and will not compromise his righteousness and man who is a sinner in broken covenant, we find the glorious beauty of the gospel and glorious divine revelation. No mere human could ever conceive of such a thing. And even though it's written down freely for anyone to read, no mere human will even understand unless the same Holy Spirit listed here, uh, spoken of here, inhabits their very soul and awakens their heart, quickens them to the truth of who God is and what the gospel is. So if that has happened to you today, realize the treasure that you retain in your own heart. Do not take it for granted. There are millions who will die, presumably, without knowing uh, the, the littlest thing about it because they are dead in their trespass, trans, uh, trespasses and sins and have not seen the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Second major point this morning, there is no salvation without a promised eternal inheritance. Back to our main text and even main verse, 915 in the book of Hebrews, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. First of all, as we look closely again at this verse, which I submit to you is packed, like vacuum packed with gospel truth, we find that there is something that sets apart or identifies the recipients of this inheritance. They are the called ones. Again, he is a mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance. So who receives this gift of salvation, this gift that is transferred to them, to their account, upon the death of the testator, Christ himself? Well, we see the recipients are those who are called in Hebrews 9.15, But there's further explanation that has preceded this point earlier in the text as well. Go to chapter 2, verse 16. We see more about the specifics of those who are actually received the privilege, such as we have it in the work of Christ and what he has died to accomplish. 2.16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. The elect of God, the people of God, the called ones, they are so distinct and so privileged, God has set his affections upon them so that not even the experience of the angels can compare. There is something specific to redemption that not even the celestial beings that inhabit the glorious you know, heavenlies, even at this moment, and can appreciate in some dimension more than we can in our physical being, have ever will ever experience. This is powerful. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had, made, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There again, that picture, wrath-absorbing sacrifice. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now notice in chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, who? Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. 
This letter is addressed to holy brothers, made so by the propitiation of Jesus' work on Calvary. This letter is addressed to those who share in a heavenly calling because God has set His affections upon them and in the mystery of His will has shown to them favor that the angels have not even realized, but only the offspring of Abraham will. In the course of the book, we also find that offspring of Abraham is a spiritual term to identify a particular people, called out, chosen, set apart, to show forth the praises of their God. The physical lineage of Abraham was a picture of that in the natural. But not all who were of Abraham in the natural are truly children of Abraham. As Paul has declared in Romans 2, not all who are Jews outwardly are truly Jews. This is to say that God himself knows his people and he has called them out from every tribe and tongue and nation and will continue to do so until the, all of the elect are gathered in and they are the ones who receive the, internal, the eternal inheritance of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 26 through 30, you remember the golden chain of redemption? Well, this passage that's probably pretty familiar to all of us, if we back up just a bit to verse 26, we see, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So there's a context of mediation here that we see as well. For he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, who? The saints, according to the will of God. So there's a particular people for whom God himself intercedes. They are the elect. They are the seed of Abraham. They are the holy brothers, those who share the heavenly calling. They are these of whom the Apostle Paul writes, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. These are the recipients of the promised eternal inheritance. Second thing to notice under a promised eternal inheritance is testament and covenant. Back in Hebrews 9, as we continue to move through our text today, the same Greek word, diatheke, as I understand it in the Greek, is used interchangeably for testament and covenant. So we see here in verse 16, for where a will is involved, diatheke is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. But backing up in verse 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new diatheke, a new covenant. So here we have two English words chosen to render the same word in the Greek. One is covenant, one is will, and of course another, a synonym for will would be testament. Well, where a will is involved, again verse 16, the death of the one who made it must be established for a will, the diatheke, takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. This passage is sophisticated and deep indeed. It identifies the work of Jesus Christ in two ways. It identifies his work with covenant and also with testament. In the biblical terms that delineate such a transaction, both are indeed in view. Although the same Greek word is used in both cases, we have it rendered two different ways in our text. Why? Because the semantic domain or the possible interpretation includes both ideas, and this really is what the author is laboring to convey. In so doing, the author of Hebrews makes the point that Christ's death satisfies the demands both of covenant and of testament. Christ's death satisfies the demands of a covenant and of a testament. In other words, you can conceive of a situation where a covenant could be made without a death. Uh, you know, two individuals uh, like, say, David and Jonathan, they make a covenant with one another. You know, they, they don't need to die to do so. So you can have a situation where there's a covenant without the necessity of death. 
However, you can't receive an inheritance without death. But you can receive an inheritance without the full or biblical view of covenant. So in other words, this is to say, by thoroughgoing imagery, using these legal terms and contractual language, that when Jesus died, it was utterly sufficient. It satisfied the terms of the covenant. His death established the exchange of His merits to our account as believers. Because His death was proof positive that that which He passed on to all who are in Him would then be transferred to the believers, to the called ones, to the elect. This is the idea of testament. When it comes to covenant, His death was more than just the necessary condition for the inheritance to pass along to the next generation, as it were. His death was also a sacrifice to satisfy the terms of broken relationship. Because the covenantal relationship between man and God was fundamentally broken, His death was also a sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God that we might be in relationship with Him again, both receive our inheritance and peace with God. Testament and covenant are in view. The inheritance is secure and the sacrifice provided for the broken covenant and both were established through the death of our mediator, Jesus Christ. Again, under, under promised eternal inheritance, the book of Hebrews goes on to speak about the inheritance itself in chapter 12. You know, there's not as much given in the text to the glories that await us beyond, but there's a whole lot of leaning forward in faith that we see throughout the scriptures. There in the entire chapter of Hebrews 11, we are told of those who saw just a glimpse, much less than we are privileged to see, who nevertheless labored for a city not made with, you know, and, and journeyed towards a city not made with human hands, but one by their faith that by their faith was real to them, that would be manifest redemption, manifest perfect redemption in glory. There's a glimpse of this in Hebrews 12. First of all, we read in 18 the contrast: for you have not come what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. Of course, speaking of Mount Sinai, verse 20. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But here we are in verse 22. This is a picture in part of our eternal inheritance. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect. You can see in the context here, if you can stand before the righteous judge of all in feasting, rejoicing, with innumerable angels singing His praises and you joining an assembly right alongside, you know that something has happened in your spiritual condition. This is only possible because you have a new covenant mediator. This is only possible because His death has satisfied both the terms of testament and covenant. When we come to Him, God, the judge of all, and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, and finally notice the exclamation point on this the gospel is here at every turn of the page, verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That is our inheritance, secured in Christ our mediator, looking forward to the day in festal gathering with innumerable angels where we will stand righteous before the judge of all the earth. Praise the Lord. Final point this morning, a death that redeems. There is no salvation without a death that redeems. Returning again to Hebrews 9.15. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. A death that redeems. It redeems from what, you may ask? Well, the answer is in our text today, our first verse. Redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Does that apply to you? The, uh, 
theologians have identified specific uses of the law. One of them, I think it's scriptural indeed, is to show us our sin. Paul has said this, without the law, I would not have known my own sin. This uh, passage right here, I submit to you, does not just apply to those who lived in that brief historical window of transition between the operating temple and the new covenant. In other words, they had sinned under the old covenant, but now that Christ had come, they would be redeemed. The old covenant law stands as a righteous standard, condemning all who are not in Christ. These are first covenant transgressions. Have you stolen? Have you committed adultery in your heart? Have you had other gods before him? You shall not covet. The scriptures tell us we ought to honor our father and mother. We should not take his name in vain. All of these, the Ten Commandments and their expanded application through the Old Covenant, are first covenant standards that dictate to us what our responsibility is before the Lord. And I submit to you that by this measure, all men are judged transgressors. The use of the law in this sense is to reveal our sin. It does not merely apply to those who lived under that historical period of covenant transition, but in fact, all who are not in Christ stand condemned under first covenant righteous standards. So when we read that since the, or, so that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, we read here that Christ himself in his death has freed us from the curse of the law. He has redeemed sinners by his blood. He has made them righteous in his sight. He has imputed his law-keeping unto us so that when we are in Christ, God looks at his Son and sees in his Son all of the elect, all of the called, and they are judged righteous in his sight. The death that redeems, redeems from first covenant transgressions, the breaking of God's law. Secondly, there's a symbolic correspondence that we find in the text in the verses that follow, verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Verse 18, therefore not even with the first covenant, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you, and in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. This picture goes all the way back to Exodus 24. If you want to turn there with me, I'll read you just several verses to which our author refers. This was the beginning of the Mosaic order. And as worship was being instituted and all the implements were being purified for their purposes, uh, Moses, as the mediator, at this time directing these affairs, used blood liberally in this instance to inaugurate the covenant, if you will. There's a symbolic correspondence between this and what Christ has done for us. I submit to you, we read of this in Exodus 24.3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that, God, that uh, the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men to the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. In other words, in this picture, we see that everything had to be covered in blood. This symbolic correspondence 
is drawn out again in the picture of tabernacle worship. Within the Ark of the Covenant was the law itself. And it has been noted by theologians that above it was the mercy seat. And of course on the Day of Atonement, the blood was spattered on the mercy seat itself. That law stood as judgment against the people. Those were the first covenant regulations that judged them as lawbreakers, condemned, hell-bent sinners. And yet intermediating or, uh, or mediating between them and, and the law was the mercy seat, which was sprinkled by the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And so it is with Christ. A death that redeems. The sprinkled blood of Christ, if you will, on the mercy seat of Calvary, stands and interposes between us and the broken law. These were some of the pictures of old that are drawn out in Hebrews 9, the Old Covenant correspondence. As we see this, we can find more of the truth and why Jesus had to die. And exactly what was the meaning of all of the things that he endured, all of his mighty works that he went through, all the way through Calvary, his death and his resurrection. In closing this morning, we are reminded that in Christ's death that redeems, it was necessary that he do so, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22 Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let me warn you of something. Uh, this idea, what I'm preaching you, to you today, its technical term is penal substitutionary atonement. That's kind of a heady phrase, is it not? Uh, penal just referring to punishment. Substitutionary, taken by another. Atonement, the washing away of sins. Now this doctrine, which is thoroughly biblical, and you can't understand Hebrews nor the Bible without, has fallen on hard times in our day. It's not because the Bible's unclear. It's because man wants to find another way. Oftentimes you'll hear people speaking down their nose, oh, the very cumbersome doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. You could, brothers and sisters, you could just as easily call it Lamb of God doctrine. Think of it. The Lamb of God was the substitute provided, and it shed blood, caused the angel of death to pass over. What did John the Baptist say when he pointed out Christ? He said, Behold the Lamb of God. What do we see in the book of Revelation? We see the Lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world to make atonement for His people. Well, oftentimes you look, uh, people kind of, to give plausible deniability for this what they think is an ugly doctrine, or they don't want to think of God as just or demanding blood or sacrifice. A God in the heavens like this is one that is not palatable <coughs> to their postmodern mind. So they, they mine all the doctrines of the early church to find out some heretic that gives them plausible deniability so that they don't have to believe the clear teaching of Hebrews. But there is no salvation without a new covenant mediator. There is no salvation without a promised eternal inheritance. And there is no salvation without a death that redeems. And there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Turn with me to Matthew 26. Before us this day, we have in these elements the picture of, this ver of these very truths. We have pictured before us the broken body of Christ and His own shed blood. Was his shed blood incidental? No. It was substantial. And it's because of his shed blood that we have forgiveness of our own sins. Jesus himself has said as much in the institution of the Lord's Supper. Drink of it, he says. Well, let me back up. Matthew 26, 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is, my, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see right here in the words of Christ himself, and apostolically expounded and declared in the entire book of Hebrews, 
and pictured in the old covenant order that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So remember this morning, if you are a believer and will soon in mere moments take communion with us, remember what is substantively, substantively accomplished in the shed blood and broken body of Christ this morning. Redemption and atonement for your sins. The perfect mediator whose death transferred to your account his inheritance and also satisfied the terms by substitution of the broken covenant with a holy God. Let us transition in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment that we have to ponder your word and also to participate in your table. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would open our spiritual eyes to see the majesty of the gospel revealed through these means today. I pray, Lord, if there are any here who these words fall on their heart and it is yet dead, I pray that you would use them sovereignly to spark them to eternal life, God. Spark in them faith, I pray. Regenerate them. And Lord, I pray that they would confess their sin and embrace a perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. For those of the elect in this room who have experienced regeneration, who testify to Christ as their Savior and Lord, I pray that our hearts would be drawn in unity with you and communion with you through this service this morning so that we do not take lightly or forget, Lord Jesus, both to remember for our own souls and to share to the lost the power of Christ's blood to redeem. I pray in all of this that you would be magnified through the testimony of your people, even when it's unpopular and even illegal to share the good news of Christ, that we would do so compelled by your Spirit moving in us to will and do of your good pleasure. We thank you for this morning that you have purchased for us. May we take advantage of it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.